Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Zadie Smith is one of Britain's most influential writers. In the 20 years plus since Smith burst onto the scene with her debut, White Teeth, her novels, essays and short stories have continued to land with both commercial and great critical success. Throughout those years, Smith has become known for her words as well as her deep thinking about literature and criticism. So too is she known for her experimentation with forms and genre. And her latest work, illustrates just this. The Fraud is Smith's first historical novel. From the dusty depths of history, it brings to life the story of the Titchborne case, one of the lengthiest trials in English history and one that enthralled Victorian England. The Fraud follows Eliza Touche, the cousin of writer and rival to Charles Dickens, William Harrison Ainsworth, as she becomes fascinated with the trials. This fascination soon hones in on one of the case's key characters, Andrew Bogle, a former slave on a sugar plantation in Jamaica who subsequently worked in Britain for the Titchborne family. When, dubiously, the Titchborne heir seems to reappear after going missing at sea, Bogle testifies on his behalf. If it sounds like there's a lot to pack in, well, there is. In this work about history, both real and imagined, and in a book about writing books. But... What do our critics make of Zadie Smith turning her eye away from contemporary life and how successfully has she resurrected this twisty tale? I'm joined by an all-A-team today. Welcome to the programme, feature writer and literary critic Alex Peake-Tompkinson and the novelist Alex Preston. And a first time, I was going to say first time listener, long time listener, first time caller. We can't call you that, but welcome to the programme nonetheless. You can see if you want to, to a return visit at the end of the programme. And Alex Preston, voice familiar to many of our listeners over the years. Lovely to have you not quite with us because of your retro COVID, but you're sounding in fine fettle. Hi. I am ill in name, but not in spirit, just slightly bouncing off the walls. So delighted to have the chance to speak to you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. We're going to start as we discuss the fraud in the studio, however, with Alex Peake Tompkinson. One of the things that bounced off the pages of Zadie Smith's new novel is its confidence, its gusto. There's such a lot of go in this book, at least there is to me. Am I amongst friends with this idea about the fraud? You absolutely are. And I think I think it's an absolute banger. I read someone today saying that she's finally made good on her reputation, which I think is a mm. bit cruel. I don't feel quite the same way. But I think this book is just so much fun. And she is visibly having fun. She has publicly said how much fun she had, that she was happy every day while she was writing this. She was laughing at her desk. An author saying that makes you think this is going to be a terrible book, you know, an author laughing at their own jokes, but it's not. The <laughs> fun is transmuted off the page. I just really, yeah, I just really loved it. I thought that it really crackles, doesn't it? There's a lot of, we'll get into historical fiction and the tropes thereof and the language of it and all the rest of it, I'm sure, as we as we go through the, the show today. But there is a, a joy in, perhaps, in the language where the contemporary and the Victorian meet 
in some way, and the, the 19th century novel meets. Well, that's really fascinating because I actually heard Zadie Smith talk about the book on Sunday and she was saying that there were phrases that she used from the time that she had to cut because they sound anachronistic. Mm-hmm. And her view of this was that actually we're incredibly vain in the 21st century. We think we're so progressive. But these ideas we have about various things, about polyamorous relationships, about people of colour, all these kind of things, they're not new and people were referring to them in the Victorian era. And in fact, particularly with the phrase man of colour, she I think she cut it because it sounds like something... You know, a young mm. person would say now, but it was a contemporary phrase. I think it is used in this novel oh, once, she, yeah. I can remember. Alex, I think, you know, what you just said, Alex, is, is brilliant. I didn't see uh, Zadie speak about that, but it strikes me that that's absolutely what this novel is about. This novel is about uh, destroying the false divide that we have created between ourselves and the past and destroying it in language, but also destroying it, as you say, in, in sensibility, in the way we think about sexuality, in the way we think about uh, about race, and, and indeed the way we think about literature, because I think that's the other thing that's so fascinating about it is, is as so often with Zadie Smith's novels, it is a, a novel which is about the, the writing of a novel itself. Yeah, well, well, I mean, that's the thing. And what about the gusto factor, Alex? Uh, should we call him? <laughs> should we do well, Alex and ill, Alex? Should we, yes, should we, should that, we divide yes. our sheep and goats that way? <laughs> Sorry, mate. Um, <laughs> what about the zing and gusto that, that Alex uh, in the studio and I were talking about at the top there? Yeah, it's. Um, I love this idea of of her coming good on her promise because I have to say. I have not loved any of her other novels since White Teeth, which I think is just, you know, completely incredible. And it's almost like she had to get the other stuff out of the way because it made the case for her as a very serious novelist. And that actually the fun here feels like somebody who has just had that kind of mantle shrugged off the shoulders, that this is somebody who is such a propulsive writer. It is so kind of almost addictively readable. You know, it's quite a long book, but it doesn't feel like a long book. It's in these very short sentences in these, I think, eight volumes. But I just absolutely raced through it. And I think it is. It's the feeling of somebody who is just absolutely having a ball and loving what they're doing. And I think that does really feed through to the reader. While you're there, Alex, let's talk about this novel broadly in the Smith oeuvre. Where does it sit? I mean, you said it's been your favourite since White Teeth. Maybe it eclipses that, I don't know, in your judgment. What have been the other stepping stones that you found more wobbly on your way across the river? Well, it's really interesting. I do keep reaching back to the the very famous James Wood review of White Teeth, which was a, a kind of both a sort of admiring but critical review and it it coined this term about her writing and about the writing of of David Foster Wallace, hysterical realism, where it was sort of, if you think about White Teeth, the way that everything is kind of turned up to 11 all the way through it and it's this sort of madcap whirl of of sensations and, and the characters all seem just a little bit more real than than reality and I I almost feel like that. That criticism, you know, remember she was only 24 
when White Teeth was was published. And that criticism really seemed to kind of take hold of her. And she seemed to be writing, you know, if you think of The Autograph Man, which is kind of forgettable, on beauty, which I really enjoyed, but very sort of slow moving and serious and ponderous and, and, and as much about literary theory and her relationship with Forster. Swing Time, again, a bit forgettable. N.W., which, you know, again, I really admired it, this kind of Joycean ode to her part of kind of Kilburn, Queen's Park, Northwest London. But none of them really engaged me as a reader in the way that White Teeth did. And I was just so delighted to come to this and just to find myself laughing and loving the characters. It reminded me a little bit of Sarah Perry's The Essex Serpent in as much as it was a novel by somebody who knew so much and there was a kind of incredible depth of research and of of literary understanding, but somebody who also knew what readers come to books for, and that is to be entertained and to and to find pleasure and to find moments of joy and moments of identification. And this novel, you know, it does that in spades. It's just such a such an enjoyable read. Thanks, Alex. Alex Pete Tomkinson in the studio. <laughs> you were keeping a poker face while Alex down the line there was talking. I didn't know whether you agreed or disagreed there. I'm trying to um, read, by the way, over over the lamp here in the middle of the studio and read your read some of your capacious notes I, opposite the afterword. Anyway, we'll come I back know, to those I'm later. Such, I'm such a schoolgirl. Um, <laughs> no, I constitutionally I agree with Alex Preston on everything, but I <laughs> don't, want... don't say that just because you share understand you share a birthday. Yeah, yeah we do, and <laughs> first name, okay, and right. he's the business. But um, I was slightly taking issue. You've both used the word gusto a lot, and I think that's an appropriate word for Zadie Smith. She is an exuberant writer, but I think it's quite a macho word, and I think this book has a quality of jouissance. It has a quality of playfulness that Mm. is a bit different. So maybe that is possibly why I was knitting my brow. Uh, (laughs) Jouissance more than gusto. Yeah. I'm totally willing to embrace jouissance, and, and it, of course, leads us to William and his ejaculate. There's a play on words I, across language. I was waiting for, for a Conan Doyleism to cross, yeah, our, yeah, to yeah, cross yeah. our bows. Thanks, Alex, for, for taking us there. Only seven <laughs> but, minutes. But, but actually, pro- Alex, carry on that thought because I, I really like that as a word for this novel. So uh, do continue. I mean, we're slightly bleeding into something that we were going to maybe approach a bit later on, which is comparing this novel to other things that it's reminded us of. Mm. And I'm, I'm just going to go there. It slightly reminds me of the film The Favourite, because this kind of almost mad embracing of a historical period, and obviously that's a completely his- different historical period. Even my history is good enough to know that Queen Victoria wasn't around when Queen Anne was around. But this kind of quite sexy, quite kind of modern interpretation of a historical period and making it really fun and making it feel really present, I think the fraud really reminded me of that. And that's possibly the best recommendation I can give for the book, that it has that quality of something like really tangible and visceral and pleasurable, which maybe the word gusto doesn't convey. <laughs> I apologise again. <laughs> no one called anyone a badger, by the way. Spoiler. <laughs> Alex, I mean, Sarah Waters would, might be another one that I would call upon as a kind of comparable where, you know, there is a sort of a sense of, if not the gothic, at least a sense of Again, maybe you call it historical, hysterical realism here in as much as, as you've said, it does take uh, an era that we all think we know and it it makes it a lot more fun than, than certainly I imagined Victorian England to be. 
Yeah, that, that, and I like that. I like I like the favourite Sarah Waters also as a companion piece. I can hear people scribbling these notes down and, and going to the I bookshop. Hope. Hopefully, <laughs> I hope. Alex here in the studio wanted to talk to you about about one of the weighty topics within it. There's the idea of it being a novel about novelists and about competition. There's the there's the setting out of a very bucolic area of the villages that became Northwest London and all these all these things which are fascinating and readable and I found addictive in it as well. What about the other half of the novel, as it were, which is Jamaica, which is slavery, which is black history? How does Zadie Smith deal with those themes, I wonder? Well, I think the honest answer is partly to say that I don't know because I don't have any comparison because although both Zadie and I have got A-levels in history, I don't think it ever occurred to me that there was this whole area of history that's completely intertwined with the things I was learning about the Reform Act and enclosures and the Agricultural Revolution and the French Revolution. I never really thought about what it might be like to be on a plantation in Jamaica. And one of the points she makes is that she didn't know and all our images of slavery are from American plantations and actually her comparison um, that she says is much more appropriate is to think of a a Victorian factory in Liverpool Mm -hmm. that's what a Jamaican plantation is like Um, There's reference to these kind of slightly orientalised beautiful kind of swaying palm trees and happy well indentured (laughs) Labour, but there, there was a whole, there's a whole art movement that aimed to make these places look idyllic, and it's something that is sort of strangely sold to us nowadays as sort of Caribbean holidays, isn't it? There's, they're not a million miles away from some of the artworks that were produced in the time. She then they're referenced, aren't they? Exactly in the in yeah, the, in the book. yeah, and that's a really interesting perspective. Um, I mean, no one, I mean, certainly I don't relish as reading about. Savory. No one thinks like, oh, wow, this is going to be fun. But it, it has to be yeah. done. Um, and it is horrific in its spareness. Um, so there are very few details about the, the, you know, the real horrors, but they are present. But I think something that she's also doing, and she's been really influenced by um, an essay by Primo Levi called The Grey Zone, is her idea that if you haven't been to hell, and I'm going to make the assumption that the three of us here haven't been to hell. Then... I forgot to explain my two black eyes before, <laughs> before you came into the studio. Then we have no business judging people that have. So that the and the, the most egregious thing that we do to people who have been in concentration camps, mentally the most egregious thing, or have been slaves, is to rob them of their moral ambiguity. So within you know, plantation, there will be there'll be people who are doing their best and behaving well and there'll be people who are not and trying to get advantage. And there are also there's a hierarchy among the slaves. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating and it's mind blowing that we don't we don't really know more about this, that it's not just common knowledge, you know. Yeah. These things that are part of us. And there is one other thing that I wanted to say about the slavery aspect of this that it really reminded me of. There's a phrase which is used as a title of a book by Ian Patel. I'm sure he wasn't the first person to use it. But the phrase is about immigration. We're here because you were there. And I think mm. that's so true. And that's why it's really important that that is part of this book. And the character through which most of this is understood, Bogle, is this sort of... is this preternaturally strong person that's kind of gone through a gone through a, hundred, a million sort of mangles it seems to arrive in the UK as a valet to to the Titchborns which is which is one of the sort of huge themes of the book this the Titchborn claimancy and stuff 
he's a supremely sparely not drawn character, but his personality is extremely spare. He's kind of almost mute, it seems like, apart from when he stands on the dais and to defend this, the slightly indefensible Tichborn. So I don't know what Alex Preston thinks about mm. this, but I think that one of the very rare criticisms of this book that I've seen so far is that he's not quite a fully rounded character. That he, you know, that everyone. But, but else... isn't that isn't that kind of the point? That, he's that shell shocked. It, it strikes well, but it strikes me that. You know, we are, of course, because it's a Zadie Smith novel and because she thinks about these things, you're aware as you're reading it that that is not done by mistake. And I think there's a, you know, there's a line she said, Eliza, the narrator, if you like, although it's the third person, but the person who we understand is is the organising consciousness behind the novel. Um, she says, what can we know of other people? And it seems to me that that, you know, that is something that Zadie Smith has always wrestled with. Uh, She has written numerous times, there's a very good essay, I think it was sort of 2019, a very good essay on exactly that subject, on the kind of act of colonisation that is the description of a character who is not ourselves. And it seems to me that the kind of journey through which she tries to understand Bogle and is left ultimately frustrated is a kind of commentary on that. And it, it's also, I think, a, a response. We find out very early on that William Ainsworth, who is this long forgotten, factually correct, but, but long forgotten novelist, had been working on a novel set partially in Jamaica. And when Eliza says to him, you know, but you've never been there, he says, yes, but neither have I lived through the restoration or been a highwayman or met Guy Fawkes. It seems to me that's one of the key things that this novel is about, is about the extent to which we can know and write the other. And one of the themes as well, and this is to both of you, is Eliza constantly comes up with, as she starts to try to write herself, or starts to write herself, I should say, constantly refers to a phrase that novelists lie to tell the truth, I suppose, as well. So mm. there's all that kind of goes into the, the soup as well. Alex, down the line, I know a couple of points that you wanted to talk about were the idea of historical fiction, its dominance, and Middlemarch as well. I wonder whether we can stir those two things together. Well, well, they're, they're of course, linked because Middlemarch was itself a, a historical novel and it's something we, we often forget about Victorian literature um, because it was, uh, you know, because it's in the past to us that actually, you know, Middlemarch was set some 30, 35 years prior to the time in which it was written. I just think it's really interesting that one of the things that this novel seems to be about is the way that we can and can't engage with the past. And we've talked about the way that Smith highlights the kind of commonalities we have with what went on before. But I guess one of the things that also really interested me was the sending up of the historical novel and, and particularly of the work of, of William Ainsworth, which does sound awful. I have to say it, it is reproduced in parts here. I've never read it, but I mean, you almost want to for the, for the sake of it, because they do seem kind of comically awful. <laughs> and William Ainsworth says to Eliza, well, how can you be reading uh, Middlemarch? It's just a lot of people going about their lives in a village. And it seems to me, again, that that, that that might be a description of Smith's previous novel, of, of N.W., that this was just a bunch of people going about, their, a lot of people going about their lives in, in one corner of, uh, of northwest London, that this is what interests her, is the ability of the novel to not only mirror life, but to expand life and to expand our understanding of life on the page. And 
in the way, actually, reading N.W. again gave me a way of thinking about this novel, which was that that book was about interwoven threads and about the uh, sort of percussive nature of experience, the way that experience uh, expands and refracts and reflects on the experience of others around us. And I think that actually that's what this book is about, because although Eliza is at its heart, you have Bogle, you have the claimant, you have uh, the wider uh, family of, of the Ainsworths, you have this literary circle, Thackeray comes in, we even meet uh, George Eliot called Mrs Lewis, because of course that was her name. And so it is this incredibly wide and sweeping picture of the historical moment, which, as Alex said earlier, is not necessarily a kind of factually correct one for a historian, but it feels to me to have a truth to it that is a deeper truth than mere historical fact. Beautiful. I wanted to... We're coming to the end of our allotted little bit of time no. on the fraud. I think we might step on the toes of our other reading section of the programme just a little bit. We've talked about, incorrectly, about Gusto, Alex, <laughs> Pete Tompkinson. No, I'm just being an absolute so feminist, we... <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> well, let's get, let's get some jouissance <laughs> in our lives. Yeah. There's a lot of fun in this novel. You, sort of, you mentioned the movie The Favourite. If Zadie Smith is having fun, and indeed if Eliza the sort of the main female protagonist is having fun. Who are they having it at the expense of? Because there's a lot of men wanging on in this book, aren't there? There are. I mean, my point at the, about earlier was that Zadie isn't having fun on her own. We we are in, all enjoying that fun. But I guess, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, um, certainly a lot of, I was going to say a lot of men being poked, but that's um, maybe not quite. Well, what that is men. happening. <laughs> talking about uh, slaves and masters. Yeah, that, that's that's a, and, and talking as Alex was saying about the kind of sexual mores of the nineteenth century. Yeah, and in this kind of quite fascinating, sly and creepy way. I mean, very sort of near to the end. There's a thing about Eliza remembering bending over Mr. Ainsworth, you know, but it's it's <laughs> kind of dealt with in like three words and you and you kind of have to read it again and you're like oh right that is yeah okay oh, she's doing that with th that that is, that is happening with that yeah but that's really fun because it's she <laughs> she passes over <laughs> right cats out the bag that's it. yes exactly well here's my confession no that it is a really fun uh, oh my god I'm, I, I'm I'm about to get myself in more trouble but that's a really that's a really fun passage you're unwell um, it's fever <laughs> do not call it a fun passage <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what I'm meaning to say by that is that uh, I love the way that sex is treated in this book because there is a kind of prim Victorianness in which there's never really an exploration of the relationship between Eliza and Mrs Ainsworth, which, which is implied but never gone into in any detail. But there is a kind of Victorian prudishness that sort of draws a veil over things when, when they get steamy. And that's also the case with, with Winnie. You know, it, it is described, the, the relationship between them, but it is, it is never gone into in kind of uh, warts and all detail. And I, I, I really liked that <laughs> because it, yes, I really, I just, I like... This is very self-revealing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I better stop. But anyway, I thought I thought it was beautifully handled. Yes, yes. It, I agree. It I is. Agree. It is. Yeah. And there's there is romance in the relationship. It seems between Francis and Eliza as well. They're, that that's written quite romantic. There's a difference between the romance of that and the kind of like the 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 must do ness of some of the kind of like yeah. the, the kind of like hold me down and 
Always wash your hands afterwards. Let's yeah. just leave it there. Let's, let's say that. But yeah, no, absolutely. There's a poignancy in that relationship with France. It's a kind mm. of melancholy and mm. yearning that feels very real. There's so much in this book. The Fraud by Lady Smith. But we're going to have to leave it there. We haven't even talked about the pace and the plotting. It skips around like mad. I'd like, genuinely like, just very quickly like to know both of your reactions. To Alex Preston, it does skip around like a gadfly does that make it easy to read did you follow everything did you always know where you were in in the book i think there were a couple of passages where i had you you have you're racing through it because as i said it has got this real propulsive nature to it there were a couple of occasions where i had to just sort of say right oh okay so the date here is 1832 so that means because it does move backward and forward in time but it is accretive you feel like all of those passages are absolutely necessary and they add up to this experience of having a kind of multifaceted, multidimensional view of the world of the novel. And I think that's one of the things that you come away with just so incredibly impressed by at the end of it. Alex Pete Tomkinson, did you feel like you were hopping from stepping stone through the fields of Wilsdon? Yes, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the aspect. And then I love that it's short chapters. It makes yeah. me so happy. Was that a reference to the fact that it would have been published episodically if it was a novel of the time that it's set? In uh, one of these little magazines, these literary magazines? I think slightly because she also wrote it slightly in the way that Dickens wrote in that she emailed chapters to two friends, I think fortnightly. Mm. So Daryl Pinkney, the novelist, and the writer Devorah Baum, she emailed them to them. And I think there was a sense of they were waiting for it. So, she, you know, she yeah. kind of, she had to do it. It's so. good. Cracking the whip. Yeah. Take that whichever way you will. Alex Preston, this reminds you of something you loved as a kid. And it's not necessarily the author, but the the subject matter. So tell us a little bit about this. We've only got five minutes for the rest of this this bit. So that's okay. I'm cracking the whip this okay. end as well. I mean, crack the whip away. So so one of the things that's at the at the centre of this novel is the Tichborne case, which was a, a famous kind of cause celebre in the uh, 1860s and 70s about a guy turning up and claiming to be the missing heir to the Tichborne baronessy. And, you know, it is this absolutely riveting case. And I was reading all about the sort of true background to this. And it, and, and everyone in the novel is sort of has taken a side on whether this claimant is, is real or not. It really reminded me and something I hadn't thought of for, for decades. I was obsessed as a kind of 11, 12, 13 year old with this collection of books called Famous Trials. And they were they were edited by John Mortimer, who wrote, you know, Rumpole of the Bailey, etc. And it just sort of made me think that that actually the trial as a as a structure for the novel is is not really used in the I mean it used to be a kind of go-to staple of the literary world that you would have these kind of trial novels and and in this case it was famous trials so they were real life courtroom reporting a mixture of courtroom reporting and and sort of after the fact reportage about sort of grisly murders incredible kind of con artists poisoners and they were absolutely totally gripping made me want to be a, a lawyer and I, I actually went back and ordered a couple of them after reading this because it reminded me how much I love those kind of courtroom dramas. Beautiful. Thanks, Alex. That's Famous Trials by John Mortimer. That sounds so good, doesn't it? Yeah, it I used to great. love that stuff at that age as well. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Alex Pete Tomkinson in the studio. We haven't mentioned the D word hardly. I no. know that she was struggling, that Zadie Smith was, she wrote about this in the New Yorker, struggling to kind of get rid of the ghost of Charles Dickens, whose shadow looms so large over this period of English fiction. And yet. Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> I have chosen something that refers to Dickens, but also to say she does murder. 
Dickens in this book. I don't think it's a spoiler. Mm. In a very short, excitable chapter called Dickens is Dead. But I wanted to mention the 1998 BBC adaptation of Our Mutual Friend, which I think is only available on iTunes. It's not available on Prime. There is an older film with Jane Seymour in it that I know nothing about on Prime, which I mistakenly bought. So I don't want our listeners to also fall into that trap. It's the newer one in 1998, which I watched when I was 19. And it's, first of all, to say, Our Mutual Friend, I'm not brooking any argument over this is the best Dickens um Philip Pencher and I have decided this Harold Bloom has got different views but you know <laughs> who cares about him um <laughs> so, so it's the best Dickens it's his last completed novel so Edwin Drood came afterwards but it's the last completed novel it's such a London novel the adaptation begins on the banks of the Thames it's got this wonderful cast like by BBC standards quite raunchy Keely Hawes Anna Friel David Morrissey, Paul McGann, Peter Vaughan's in it, who I think people of my vintage will know him as Gouty from Porridge. He's brilliant. Pam Ferris, uh, David Bradley. It's a fantastic adaptation. And I think it has some of that quality that this book has of just being really alive, you know, mm. and realising that you can create something that's set in a historical period and make it feel present, you know, make it kind of feel relevant in a in a really tangible way you know that it doesn't you the details do matter the details have to be there to hold the whole thing together and make it believable and make you suspend your disbelief but that you can you can make this kind of historical work a living thing and i think we were all there weren't we we were all there reading yeah. the book alex preston you were there i was there He's not there really, but he's there, he's there with us in spirit. <laughs> he is. Our mutual friend, get well soon, Alex Preston. <laughs> <laughs> That's glorious. Oh, Very dear. nicely done. Yeah. I'm only always milliseconds away from being a cheesy daytime local <laughs> DJ, as we all know. Alex Preston, Alex Pete Tompkinson, thank you both very much indeed for your wit and wisdom on The Fraud by Zadie Smith. That book is out now. It's published by Hamish Hamilton at Penguin Random House. Monocle and Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. Many thanks also to Sammy Swissy for his help this week. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. 